Hoş geldiniz. Willkommen, welcome, bienvenue à le Drawing Core Podcast. How are you? Are you very well? I hope that you're very well. This week is a kind of special podcast. It is what we have called Bad Trips. This is Bad Trips number one. And uh, Bad Trips is our new psychedelic horror film club. And so this week uh, of this episode, we're going to, because we do more than one episode a week now. Crazy, I know. This episode, we're talking about a film, Altered States, from 1980. Uh, there was an event on Facebook for you to uh, encourage you to watch the film. We talked about it last week a little bit. Hope that you've watched the film and you're excited to hear some thoughts about it. Um, if you haven't watched the film, this podcast, it will going to spoil it for you. We are going to go through the plot, but if you're not going to watch the film, this should still be of interest to you. And like I said, we're going to go through the plot, so we're not, you're going you're gonna to know what happens in it. You're not going to miss out. Some people, psychedelic horror films, not their cup of tea. But the Drawing Core podcast, it, can, it very much can still be your cup of tea. There's um, no need to feel trapped in that Venn diagram. You can float about however you want. I got very into researching about this film. Oh yes sir, very into it. So we've got lots of fun things to talk about, some of which are very weird. And oh mama, they're, 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 we're gonna go into some places. So let's let's talk about Altered States. What, what is Altered States? Altered States is, um, made in 1980 and it's written by someone called Paddy Chayefsky who's also known for the film Network which has um, that uh, really famous uh, or the famous quite well known speech in it um, by a news anchor who's kind of gone crazy and he's like um, uh Everything everywhere is going crazy. We can't even go out anymore. We're stuck inside and all we want to say is just leave me alone in my living room. All I want is my toaster and my TV and my steel belted radio. Um, I don't I don't want to tell you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you what to write. I just want you to get mad. That was um, not a very good rendition of that. But um, the, the get mad speech from Network, which is a kind of satire on the television industry. There's also a film called uh, The The Hospital, which apparently is a satire of the healthcare system in America, but I haven't watched that yet. Have got it ready to watch, but um, there's only so much research I could reasonably do for this podcast. So, um, Chayefsky, this uh, screenwriter, is... um, he, he wrote the, the book that Altered States was based on and I think as he did in other situations perhaps the book was in fact a template for the screenplay 
so he wrote a novel in order to preempt his own screenplay and then in the production of the film he actually had um, almost complete creative control which is very unusual for a writer but um, uh, I've, I've got a little um, I dr I've got a little quote here the journalist called Dave Itzkoff who uh, wrote uh, um, in uh, his book Mad as Hell the Making of Network and the Fateful Vision of the Angriest Man in the Movies this character of, in Network wh whose speech I just tried to deliver um, uh, was a product of Chayefsky's many frustrations where others avoided conflict he cultivated it and embraced it his fury nourished him making him intense and unpredictable but also keeping him focused and productive Itzkov describes Chayefsky as intensely troubled, a huge egomaniac and control freak, dispirited about the world, wryly comic, and a both present and absent family man. What a character! And you'll see that character of Chayefsky probably coming out again in um, the main character of Altered States, Mr. Eddie Jessup. Um, but we're gonna. We're not get. We're not there quite yet. I want to talk a little bit more about Chayefsky because, oh, does he seem interesting? So, he said that he wouldn't allow any changes to his dialogue or, or the narrative of the film. Um, but the director, in fact, there was one director. Uh, I remember the name who was working on the film left because Chayefsky was too difficult to work with, and then Ken Russell. Um, uh, Ken Russell. Um, is a British film director and he um, in like after after the war and going into the 60s and 70s um, and 80s um, proved that British cinema didn't have to be so kitchen sink and it could be flamboyant and slightly experimental and abstract and kind of edgy um, so this is the first first time Ken Russell made a film in Hollywood um, and uh, he actually says that um, he's, he uh, he expected Hollywood to be terribly materialistic but during Altered States um, it was the only movie where nobody, not Warner Brothers or the executive producer or the producer ever mentioned money Chayefsky, however, seemed to be rather difficult for Russell to work with. Um, Russell called him the monkey on his back, who was always there and wouldn't let go. So he was apparently uh, nice at first, but then started to be mean and sarcastic and treated Paddy as a non-entity. <laughs> so while Chayefsky had the power to fire the director, um, the producer told him he could only do so if he took over direction for himself. So Chayefsky fucked off and monitored production from a distance. And apparently uh, some of the actors were uh, read, have read their lines. I don't know if you can tell this in the film, but um, read their lines too fast and would do things like speaking the lines while eating as a sort of small protest against his... 
controlling over his control over the dialogue so in fact in the end he was upset by the film he didn't like it so he, and he withdrew from the production and took his name off the credits and uh, the name on the as the writer of the film in the credits is now Sidney Aaron not Paddy Chayefsky <laughs> which is all ready very funny I think it's sort of all exciting drama um, there's a review in the New York Times by someone called Janet Maslin and she says it's easy to guess why Chayefsky and Ken Russell didn't see eye to eye the direction without being mocking or campy treats outlandish material so matter-of-factly that it often has a facetious ring the screenplay on the other hand on the other hand cries out to be taken seriously as it addresses the death of God and the origins of man with no hint of irony so I've let's let's get into the film because um yeah this is this, this is the background this kind of tense scenario of, of, of making that went into this movie and the and the tension between the seriousness of this writer and the result which is a lot more schlocky a lot more ridiculous and over the top that it kind of clashes with that with that serious matter-of-factness of the subject matter so Altered States is about a man called Eddie Jessup Eddie Jessup is a uh, science man and he is uh, interested in internal states he is described by um, his friend and close collaborator uh, Arthur Rosenberg as a high-handed arrogant prick a little nuts but brilliant um, so Eddie Jessup as he ever but but um, air hold on a minute here's me forgetting to write down first bit of information that um, I was going to uh, yeah William William Hurt f famous actor William Hurt plays Edward Jessup um, in his first movie um, and uh, Arthur Rosenberg his mate is played by Bob Balaban who you might know from Wes Anderson movies so Eddie and Arthur are doing experiments with isolation tanks isolation tanks are like uh, big tanks of water that you float in and you're deprived of any stimulus so it's just you and water and you can't hear anything you can't see anything and, and uh, Eddie is in these tanks for hours at a time in order to investigate the internal states that he is experiencing So straight away, we get a little glimpse of um, Eddie in the isolation tank, and then him, and then him coming out and talking to Arthur. And already he seems a little bit domineering of his um, of his little of his little mate Arthur, a little bit controlling. Then we see them, 
at a, at a nice little um, house party. There's uh, there's uh, there's um, snacks on the table. There's uh, some sitar music playing. There's uh, obviously some kind of intellectual professor types milling about, and there's some sitar music in the background. So already, it's almost got this like a sixties. Uh, vibe someone's passing a joint around just not very it's not not central but you see a little <laughs> kind of passing around it's Arthur's party it seems Eddie comes along uh, and it's where he he meets Emily she's played by Blair Brown who uh, is one of the main characters in television show fringe is also uh, a recurring character in Orange is the New Black, Miss, Miss Blair Brown. So Emily uh, is at the party and uh, Eddie arrives and he appears at the doorway bathed in light. There is a white, there was nothing but white light behind him and he is sil silhouetted in the doorway. Don't forget that. That's a thing. But anyway, he meets Emily and they they um, quickly uh, fall into a relationship and it just seems okay like considering how m many m male counterparts of heterosexual relationships in movies especially ones that were made yeah I think this is 40 years ago it can tend to exhibit some kind of domination of the uh, over the woman this seems like pretty that there's strong individuals in this relationship I don't feel like there's uh, too much misogyny already present so that's a plus because sadly often uh, misogyny is there right out of the gate so I think um, even just seeing a heterosexual relationship in movies is almost a red flag or a kind of oh let's see where this goes but they seem to be having a pretty good start to their relationship old Eddie and Emily um, and uh, we, we go straight to them having a nice uh, sweaty uh, sex sexy scene mid coitus um, pouring sweat presumably because there's a heater right next to them Eddie staring into the heater has a bit of a moment and um, she, she says well, what are you thinking about and he says God, Jesus, crucifixions. That's a good, dirty talk from Eddie there. So he reveals to her um, that uh, growing up he used to have religious visions until he lost his dad to a, a protract, protract, protracted and painful uh, cancer illness at age 16 at which point he lost his uh, religious beliefs so we see Eddie quite vulnerable here it's a, it's a strong moment of male vulnerability which is um, not seen again generally throughout the rest of the film just interesting that we see a character um, divulge so much um, at that moment of uh, sex and that sex scene is kind of um, broken and there isn't really a 
particularly positive sexual passion during this movie. We'll see some darker moments uh, soon, in fact. Um, but he's still he's still this tortured figure, who's kind of, although he's in that vulnerable state, he's still kind of strongly male. Right. So we're back in the isolation tank. And at this point we get our first visuals. This movie is uh, is very good for its um, special effects. Another lovely 1980s um, psychedelic visual experience. And um, genuinely is very interesting and very good. And uh, if you haven't, if you don't want to watch the film but you're kind of interested in seeing what that is, uh, you can. I think people have put on YouTube just the hallucinatory or um, trip scenes or visual experience. You'll find it. Just you'll you find it very easily. Um, and to be fair, they're pretty aggressively weird for a Hollywood movie, especially run around that time. So what we see in this first visual sequence, this is Eddie in the isolation tank, and uh, his face is kind of superimposed upon the sky, and there are fishes swimming in the sky. And uh, you see that his self, he is at the center of his experience there. And then we see his dad in the hospital bed. And um, his dad is obviously dying. And as he dies, he he's getting this uh, cloth thrown on his face, the cloth that has a picture of Jesus' face on it. But his dad pulls the cloth off and throws it to the floor and it bursts into flame as if his dad is being like, no, I'm, I'm not Jesus. Um, someone else and um, then we see uh, Jesus on the cross except Jesus's head is a, a giant lamb's head or ram's head sheep's head with seven horns and seven eyes as is referenced in uh, the book of revelations in the Bible and this uh, ram is is on the cross writhing in pain and all sweaty Perhaps it is meant to be um, our Eddie. And then the lamb is sacrificed, and there's a book, and then uh, it, we see a sort of brief bit of Eddie raping Emily. And then we go into all these kind of burning images and sort of circles like lava, red, fiery, oh, ah, e kind of thing. Ooh, so that's our first trip. The first trip that we got. After this, we have a scene, uh, uh, a slightly more domestic scene, admittedly happens in a lab. In this scene, we really see um, Eddie failing to connect with Emily. She's trying to talk to him. He's not very interested. She's trying to say something nice. He's not really able to hear it. He can't say to her that he loves her. He has this um, continued inability throughout the film to express his love. She says to him that sometimes sex feels like being harpooned by some raging monk in the act of receiving God. Eddie's got some issues to work through. Um, and she tells him, you'd sell your soul to find the great truth. But human life doesn't have a great truth. And one way we find meaning is through love. 
but obviously she's saying he he's enabled to just fucking realize that come on mate stop just get a grip but then she asks him to marry her and he kind of says yes takes him a little while and um, she says that she doesn't want him to change because she loves him for who he is even though uh, sometimes uh, fucking him feels like being harpooned by some raging monk in the act of receiving God but still still I think um, relatively strong individuals characters she doesn't really take his shit lying down um, so so with that you know let's let's keep going with their relationship let's not dismiss it um, just yet even though we, we've got the information that he's a, a bit of a dick seven years later we meet Mason Parrish played by uh, Charles Hayde who apparently is known for playing Officer Andy Renko in Hill Street Blues if anyone's seen that but perhaps more interestingly he also played in a film from 1976 called Alex and the Gypsy he played Second Goon almost as good as that or perhaps better in 1980 same year as uh, this film Altered States he played someone called Buck Sunday in Prey TV the Wikipedia article for which no longer exists also in 1984 in an unreleased film called The House of God he played Fats aka the Fat Man but to be fair to Charles Hayde he has also done a lot of directing directed a lot of Nip Tuck and Sons of Anarchy if you were wondering so Mason, Mason Parrish played by Charles Hayde um, hope, I hope that you'll remember Charles Hayde now just for the fact that I had so much information about him even though most of that information was based on the fact that who who is Charles Hayde and why would you care um, so uh, Mason Parrish played by Charles Hayde he's at a party Arthur's there Arthur's wife is there Eddie's there, Emily's there. They've had two kids now. One played by Megan Jeffers, uh, who I don't know who that is, and another played by Drew Barrymore, who is obviously like 11 years old in this film or whatever, is compared to everyone else on the cast, uh, has been in every film. She's the most famous person in the movie. Also, her first film. There you go. Anyway turns out Emmy, Emily and uh, Eddie they're about to divorce at this point still kind of strong individuals um, but Eddie has this he expresses this railing against the trappings of his life this sort of mundanity of normal life kind of feels like it's holding him back from some important research so here his ego is like straining at uh, this relationship and uh, his family and whatever else he feels is just not good enough so again a bit of a dick but um, the, the film the film the film seems to have, be giving Emily 
some some respect at this point like she's still kind of uh, I, I feel like the fact that they they don't have these scenes of domestic discontent uh, we, we are thrown seven years later and yeah they're gonna divorce they've made that decision kind of feels like we we're trusted we're given we're given the how do you say the film trusts us enough to the film trusts us with that lack of information so that we I feel like we in return trust Emily and Eddie to have to have worked that out if that makes sense so anyway Eddie goes to Mexico he goes to Mexico because um, he uh, has got this connection to um, uh, Hinchy, I believe it is, Hinchy tribe, um, who have a ceremony, um, uh, Tex, uh, what's it called? Texaco or something, ceremony, um, where they take um, something called the first flower. Um, which uh, in the film they say is Amanita muscaria, which is fly agaric, the uh, toadstool mushroom red with white spots. But um, in the film, the actual thing they seem to take is they take seems to be ayahuasca, which is made from um, bark, and the active chemical in that is DMT, which earlier in the film he does mention is being used in his lab by him on another patient. But anyway. He goes and has this ayahuasca ceremony. This trip, the second trip of our film, seems very painful. He takes, he drinks the, um, he drinks the ayahuasca, and then he kind of stumbles about in this cave, um, in lots of pain, and there are fireworks going off, and he's all sweaty and. Blah. And um, then we start to see images of him and Emily eating, dressed all in white. Uh, a period costume, but all white. And at one point red, all red. At a table, like a kind of outdoor table, which is also white. On a metal table, metal chairs, ornate, cast iron or something. And that is superimposed upon an image of um, yellow flowers on a sort of hill in the, in a breeze. Um, I, I'm not I'm not going to offer you an interpretation of that. I couldn't really get one. Also, see images of um, sort of tribal dances. This tribe in Mexico, which is kind of a bit of a clash of racist imagery. There's even a yin yang symbol. Um, the circle, which has another has a name beginning with T, um, but it's it's definitely associated with China. It's definitely not something that you tend to find. And I did try and look it up, but I'm pretty sure you don't find that in um, uh, Native American tribal uh, histories or anything like that, or Aztec tribal histories or whatever is meant to be. 
it's, it's a bit of a mess in the film, not surprisingly, to be honest with you. So we've got this slightly racist tribal imagery, a bit scary, people dancing around with masks on. Um, Eddie at one point is sort of strangled by a snake or is like trying to get this python away from his neck. And then he sees a monitor lizard. And then the monitor lizard is replaced by a naked Emily kind of lying on the floor. And uh, at this point, the trip kind of relaxes a bit and it's sort of just him and Emily. And he and Emily gradually turn to sand and blow away. And then he wakes up and uh-oh, he's killed a monitor lizard. And um, its guts are kind of lying on the floor in not a very nice way. So there's obviously a bit of a cl colonialist reading here, like not very not very hard to problematize this section of the film and uh, when they t when they, when they take this ayahuasca when they do the ceremony the um i think they use the term bruja which i think means witch or they also use the term witch doctor cuts grabs eddie's hand and cuts it um so the blood can go in the mixture which i'm pretty sure is uh, is not going to happen if you go and do an ayahuasca ceremony with tribal witch doctors that is a kind of just added element in order to kind of freak you out because that's what those savage people would do and then he brings the substance back to the US for his research despite this slightly harrowing experience where he's sort of presented as the victim of this situation in a way so there you've got the um, colonial territory, the native people presented as kind of dodgy, and yet we're still going to take their resources. Thumbs up to Edward Jessup there for being a colonist. So then he's tripping again, not in the tank, just with this um, substance, the mushroom or the ayahuasca or whatever, whatever it is. He's not in the tank. It's just tripping and it's all hellscapes and he's even he's even speaking the words of revelations from the bible over the top of these images of like fire and brimstone and lots of naked people in hell and um, a little bit of emily screaming so as you may have noticed all three trips up to this point involve emily's suffering and I have tried to maintain a position of her being a kind of strong, independent, individual character. But it, it, it's starting to look shaky. It's starting to look shaky. So now, uh, Mason, Mason Parrish, as you remember, played by Charles Hade, he's now involved in these uh, experiments. And he sure is sceptical. He thinks it's all a bit rubbish, but... He is also too much intrigued not to join in. So now there's three of them, Arthur, Mason, and our Eddie. So next up he has a trip in an isolation tank. This time he has visit visions of an early man, like a proto-human, which describes as the true human form. And uh, he insists his visions have externalized, so he sees them at first 
Um, before that he, he becomes one of them so he sees them first then he becomes one of them and then uh, he eats a, he catches and kills and eats a goat and then later on um, he has blood on his when he goes out the tank he has blood all over his mouth and the idea is that his visions have externalized he's kind of made them real and after he comes out the tank he, he talks about how he needs to reconstitute he gets x-rays of his jaw which uh, turn out to have some kind of simian-like characteristics. So the implication is that he has physically regressed into a proto-human form and then reconstituted after his trip. Ooh, crazy stuff. Later that night, in bed with one of his students, mm, yeah, I know what you're thinking. I'm thinking it too. In bed with one of his students, he wakes up and almost transforms into some kind of creature. Goes a bit ape-like. His arms start bulging and moving and his stomach goes um, It's obviously we're seeing here that he has started to release something that he is spilling out outside of his trips. Something that he cannot control. Emily comes back from baboon research in Africa. Um, there's a wonderful scene where she's talking to Eddie about, um, yeah, so Mason says you're doing this crazy research. I'm not sure it's very safe. And he's like, no, you don't understand. It's so important. And um, then one of their, one of their children comes in, possibly Drew Barrymore. I don't know one of them anyway, comes in, says, Mummy, when are we going to eat? And then she kind of starts, she, she tells the child to go away and puts something on the, seems to start cooking, basically, puts some water to boil. Um, but that's the only line we get from the kids in this movie. That is, in fact, one of the last times we see any, uh, either of the children. Um, I guess they're in the film just to kind of prove a point that he's not a great dad although she seems to struggle as well she's been doing baboon research in Africa did the kids go with her did they get taken out of school what's the deal with that it's also possibly in there as an excuse to absorb Emily into mother duties that's possibly an element of misogyny that we're seeing in the film, in the narrative construction of the film. It's very much open, very much possible to read that, I think. So, Emily and Eddie are having this discussion. She's thinking he's a bit crazy. He's trying to push her to, uh, to take a look at his notes or whatever. And she does, she does a very good job actually of keeping her cool. She doesn't rise to his anger. And uh, she says that, yes, yeah, she'll look at his research tomorrow. But although she's still worried about him, but uh, Eddie is not obviously very convinced by this or not appeased enough. So he goes, goes ahead and does a solo trip in the isolation tank with this substance. So no one else is there, just him in the tank. And this 
is the point of the film where we get a bit more of a traditional horror section. And uh, the particular type of traditional horror film that we get to enjoy for uh, this, this part is uh, the creature feature. You know the one, the one where the monster. So, Eddie transforms into a kind of proto-human simian creature, attacks and possibly kills two or three security guards. He then gets chased by slash follows some dogs some wild dogs, street dogs, uh, to the, to the city, city zoo. And he goes in the city zoo, he has a bit of a, a, a bit of an encounter with a couple of elephants and a, and a rhino, and then he, um, a, he attacks and kills and eats um, a small deer. And uh, he later, describes this as the most supremely satisfying experience of his life. And what he's saying here is echoing what he said before about hating the trappings of life that he finds mundane. And he wants to, at the one hand, um, reach some kind of ultimate truth, but also kind of his idea of ultimate truth is somehow regressing to, to some much more basic experience where it's just focused on you know eating drinking sleeping and it's kind of like his heavy cynicism about life can kind of be brushed away so um somehow waking up in the in the enclosure with the uh, eat with the deer that he's feasted on and attacking this the security guards and everything somehow not a legal problem for Eddie in fact no he's not going to be long before he's back in the lab um, he gets bailed out of uh, the jail cell um, has a little bit of a chat with Emily who tries to intervene but at the same time he's kind of won over and in fact convinces him to stay over here I think we really see that the relationship with this film um, presents with Emily and Eddie is she is her is her subservience to him he is this bold striding forth man and she is his woman she is uh, obviously long suffering his inability to simply to even even in a simple way express his love um, she is she is put up with all of his fierce, determined truth-seeking, even when it seems to transform their 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 sex life. And while he is he has he has grown disinterested in the trappings of their life, she presumably has been the one to raise their children, while also doing her baboon research and yet still being there for him at the end because she just can't quit old Eddie because he's so compelling even though he's almost consistently a bit of a dick so I'm going to read um, so, 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 so she, like I said she's kind of won over so they end up doing this final experiment 
and Eddie's there, Mason is there, Arthur is there, and uh, Emily is there. All because they're like, hold on a minute, did he really transform into a monkey? We gotta see this. So, I'm gonna read the Wikipedia plot summary of this, which is much better than I could write it, and then I'm gonna tell you more or less exactly what happens in my description. So, in the final experiment, Edward experiences a more profound regression, transforming into an amorphous mass of conscious, primordial matter. An energy wave released from the experiment stuns Edward's colleagues and destroys the tank. Emily arrives to find a swirling maelstrom where the, where the tank has been. She searches the vortex for Edward, finding him as he is on the brink of becoming a non-physical form of proto-consciousness and possibly disappearing from our version of reality altogether. Right, so what happens while he's in the tank? The monitor, like the video of him, starts to go crazy, flashing lights and stuff. His body on the screen looks like it's morphing. Our friend Mason, played by Mr. Haig, tries to open the tank and is thrown back. Arthur, meanwhile, faints, just looking at the television screen. Emily goes to try and open the tank too, but Mason carries her out, all the way out of the lab, kind of smashes her against the wall, causing her to pass out. She wakes up a short time later, goes back into the room. Mason is now also passed out. Arthur is passed out in a different position to how he was passed out before. And inside the tank room, it is now raining and steaming from the pipes, I think. And then the pipes start buckling. Meanwhile, Eddie's body is sort of melting. Then the tank sort of explodes and this harsh blue-white light is just, it's just coming out from where it was. The window into the tank room explodes and because the door can't be opened, Emily climbs through the window and it's just this swirling water smoke vortex where the tank used to be. So she kind of wades through that, almost falling in, doesn't quite fall in. And then we see lots of abstract images of cells and freaky fires and I don't know what else. And then uh, Emily reaches into this weird space. It also seems to be naked at the moment of reaching. Hmm. And uh, Eddie reconstitutes in her hands and she pulls him out. And he's kind of rescued from that. Uh, yeah, on, from being on the brink of becoming a non-physical form of proto-consciousness and possibly disappearing from our version of reality altogether. So they go home, as you do. Uh, Eddie uh, recuperates for a few days, sleeps it off. Um, and at this point, we get the only bit of real empathy with Emily, I think. Although, it does turn to be all about her obsession with Eddie. So she gets a chance to voice her um, suffering for the first time. But it is all about Eddie. And she says that um, his, in his view, in Eddie's view, all humans are just transitory matter. And that this final experience, this last trip was, was love for him and he finally got it off with God.
Then a bit later, in our in the final scene of the film, Eddie comes to Emily and says that she saved him from this final pit of terror and that at the end there is just a terrible nothing. And the final truth is that there is no final truth. The truth is what's transitory. It is human life. So we're thinking, okay, actually he's, a, he's kind of on board with what Emily's saying. But he says the terror is real and growing within him and the only thing keeping him alive is Emily, but that it's too late to save him. Oh, what a... What a what a dramatic self-sacrificing man this is. And then he begins to be taken over once again by this regressive force, turning into a freaky melty man. And Emily's like, no, fight it. You can you can save it. And she reaches out, but then she also kind of she gets kind of zapped by his energy and she begins to transform. And then he is able to fight off this regressive force as if fighting off his own self-centered determination trying because he's trying to save her that's that's his real motivation there for fighting it off and at the end he, he reaches her and uh, she turns back into a human and he, he turns to a human and he says that he does love her and that's his redemption there right there that's the very end of the film oh so he made it he made it through the all the film there. I hope that you're still with us. Um, it was a, it was a, it was quite a ride. And um, uh, let's take some time to uh, distract ourselves. So, what the fuck is going on with this isolation tanks and this taking drugs and this? What kind of crazy person would actually do that? in real life and I can tell you what kind of crazy person would do that Mr. John C. Lilly John C. Lilly you might have heard about he was a scientist he died in 2001 he worked in the 50s so uh, he was a neurologist and psychoanalyst and most of it he spent a lot of time in the 50s experimenting on human and animal brains and in the 50s he developed um, the first isolation tanks so like we had uh, in the movie isolation tanks he started with a question of whether or not the brain needed external stimuli to kind of stay awake to I think to kind of continue its consciousness so he uh, used this tank that had been designed to to research kind of metabolism underwater so essentially a basic isolation tank uh, and then he continued to develop his own specifically for this purpose of like looking at the brain when it was deprived of all stimuli so he was demonstrating that the brain continues to generate sensory data even when starved of sensory input so these salt water tanks, still widely used in alternative healing circles, suspend the body in total silence and darkness, rendering the subject powerless to discern where they end and the outside world begins. He, however, didn't necessarily like the term uh, sensory deprivation. So we're going to have a little 
a little recording of him of him speaking now. Check check this out. This was not an isolation tank. That's a cover story. It is really a doorway into the universe. It allows one to escape one's body. One's soul can leave, and one can clean one's karma from one's soul and become pure spirit. Whoa there, Mr. Lily. That sounds a little bit like our friend Mr. Eddie Jessup. So you can see that uh, Mr. Chayevsky uh, would have used John C. Lilly to inspire his writing in this film, for sure. But let's keep, let's keep going with John C. Lilly, because, oh gosh, he's an interesting character. At first he was hesitant to share uh, this kind of more profound side to what he uh, found with the isolation tanks because he didn't want people to think he was crazy so he got more people to try it more people to try it gradually built up his research and he had some 1956 research paper uh, obviously with the results of this kind of stuff somebody apparently reinterpreted um, those results to fit their own results which were about people not much liking uh, being in, in being involuntarily in ventilators, so people who were in ne who needed ventil like to use vent ventilators, so there was it wasn't a choice for them; it was a medical necessity. They didn't much like being in that situation, and this other guy uh, called that um, named that you know he said that was a psychosis, and so he reinterpreted Lily's work in isolation tanks to uh, fit in with that. Meanwhile, Lily and his friends were getting into ecstasy. They were loving life in isolation tanks. Their experiences were uh, categorically positive. Um, he did not have such a results to say that people didn't like being in isolation tanks. And this is exactly where the film Altered States starts. Uh, there is a narration at the beginning saying that um, only two subjects had a negative experience being suspended in this tank uh, for you know, hours at a time. So John C. Lilly, at this point he's, he's just, uh, you know, learning about isolation tanks, trying to be taken seriously, you know, the crack. Then he starts getting into dolphins. So. It's unclear whether he became interested in LSD before or after he became interested in dolphins. One narrative that I have found is that he became interested in dolphins because he was like, hey, isolation tanks are neat. You know who lives in like a big isolation tank like all the time? A dolphin. Another um, version of the story is uh, this is him again um, talking about an LSD experience he had and how it was um, affected by dolphins. I spent two years in the tank running experiments in the Virgin Islands this time in seawater 
in an eight-foot cube above a dolphin pool. And they programmed the trips, as I found out later, and took me out into the universe in a very expanded way. They? Who the dolphins. Really? The three dolphins, yes. So, he, and the, the third, um, the third, uh, narrative I've got about um, him getting into drugs was that in 1963 he was persuaded to try LSD by the wife of Ivan Tors who was the producer of Flipper, the 1963 movie about a dolphin, uh, sorry, TV show about a dolphin who goes on adventures with children. So whatever the story, he, he, he got into dolphins um, and a bit of LSD, but the dolphins, let's talk about dolphins first. He tried to teach dolphins to speak now there is a documentary about this that was on bbc4 called uh, the girl who talks who the girl who talked with dolphins i think um and it focuses on the woman margaret who um actually talked actually spent time with uh, a dolphin called peter she uh, created this uh, she kind of flooded this house with water um, the house that uh, John C. Lilly had built for his dolphin research and she lived with Peter the dolphin for 10 weeks in this half submerged environment every day trying to teach him English and although this is um, sounds you know batshit crazy you should, you know, bear in mind that everyone was really, really excited about this. He got all this money from uh, the Space Administration because they figured that if they could learn how to communicate with dolphins, then they could learn how to communicate with aliens should we, should we encounter them. So it actually had quite a lot of support and popular support as well. People, people were sure interested about dolphins speaking English. And uh, obviously, you'd probably be wondering, what did that sound like? Well, take a listen to Margaret um, teaching, trying to get Peter to say the words ball, oblong, and triangle. Let's go through all our toys, Peter. So as you can see, Peter's not quite there, but my god isn't that cute. This is so cute. It's just so cute. And uh, and a pretty impressive job of mimicking the inflections and the tones that Margaret's using there. And that's more or less where they got to. And uh, she maintains that that was only a sh short amount of time considering how long it takes humans to learn to speak. She thinks that if they'd have been able to continue the experiments uh, they would have been able to get the dolphin to speak most other people apparently uh, disagree apparently most other people who work in similar areas of research think that you can't teach dolphin English and a lot of people apparently 
um, um, focus more on learning how animals communicate with each other this was very directly trying to teach animals our communication as humans so uh, in that way it differed quite a lot from uh, it has differed quite a lot from the closest other research um, and as you can as you're probably thinking probably thinking ah, this sounds the dolphin sounds cute and all but isn't this a bit cruel and why yes it is a bit fucking cruel and um, that's why uh, well I say that's why eventually uh, Miss John C. Wright, John C. Lilly um, decided that yes what he was doing was in fact very cruel and he uh, he he started campaigning for um, the protection of dolphins and he had this to say I had no right to confine them, to imprison them, to work on them. My only right would be to work with them in their natural habitat, in their natural state. So while I don't wish to defend John C. Lilly because what he did was cruel, I do wish to make the point that so much almost all animal experimentation is cruel and it still happens today maybe not so much with dolphins but you you can't you find you find it very difficult to get into you know some kind of read a read a book about scientific research and you'll come across rats being made to suffer far too quickly i think that it's, and it's crazy how many products are still in our pharmacies on our on the shelves of uh, cosmetics and um, you know toiletry products that are all tested on animals. There is so much cruelty in the scientific community towards animals, and while this guy is obviously one of those dickheads who tortured dolphins for his own possibly misguided hopes about what it could achieve he did make a bit of a u-turn uh, and uh, make that make that speech that he didn't like the way he was working with them putting electrodes in their heads um, Peter died in the end um, I'm not going to go into the stories of exactly how cruel he was um, but eventually he released dolphins and he was the first, there was the first release of dolphin, of captive dolphins ever. And apparently he had some more to release, so he wanted to, um, he decided, he wanted to allow the dolphins to decide whether they would like to continue to work with him. And he wanted to reposition the dolphins as the teachers, rather than the, the humans as the teachers. And therefore, he did uh, some more more communication with them before he released them, and he did some work. And I'm the chronology chronology of some of these events might be a bit loose because of I picked these things up from different sources. But he worked with someone called John Kurtz, who decided that he, who had decided that human speech was redundant, and um, he was working on some kind of 
electronic language that he was producing through early computers and um, Lily drew him into working with dolphins and he said that he was meditating one day and through ESP communication through telepathy he said to the dolphins we will not take you home unless you do something unexpected at which point the dolphins through this computer thing where they could I don't know how but they could somehow manipulate this um, these electronic this electronic voice they said something like the ball goes in the bucket something relatively innocuous but it was the first time they'd uh, spontaneously used this communication device they'd been given so supposedly at the end of uh, his dolphin communication days he managed to communicate telepathically with the dolphins who managed to answer back you might have noticed we're getting a little bit off the we're going a little bit off the deep end with this John C. Lilly character and we're going to go a little bit further off the deep end because it gets m even more interesting so while he's very much known for his work with uh, LSD he also got very into ketamine and I don't think many people have done much experimentation with ketamine as a psychedelic it's used to treat it's, it's a tranquilizer but it's also used to treat people who um, have uh, prosthetic limbs so it gives a sense of uh, the limbs being part of their body he said about ketamine and his ketamine experiences if you get into these spaces you must forget about them when you come back you must forget that you're omnipotent and omniscient and take the game seriously so that you'll participate in the whole human scenario so getting into these drugs especially in the 60s when there is a lot of popular culture uh, kind of stumbling its way out of the out into the light doing kinds of weird and wonderful and dangerous things with this stuff because you remember like uh, the CIA were doing very controversial um, testing program uh, like tests with um, with LSD and other drugs so there was a kind of period before the the war on drugs so that was about 1970 when Richard Nixon instigated this war on drugs which was um, uh, which, and, and, and his aides have said since then that um, they they misrepresented these psychedelic drugs um, deliberately in order to um, in order to persecute the anti-war movement and uh, to persecute black people in the US so it was a uh, it was a you know the war against drugs was weaponized to be because it to be a war against um, these people the groups of people that, that the administration didn't like so despite the just before then you know it was being used in laboratories and it was be, it was part of uh, scientific experimentation for about 15 years before then and then since then it's had this wild wildly undeserved negative um, reputation 
and it's only in the last 15 years that it's been able to be uh, used again in experimentation. I'm talking mainly about LSD, but generally about psychedelic substances. It's very interesting history. So, um, so yeah, but the thing about this first period of 15 years before the war on drugs is that uh, a lot of the scientific methods were not as stringent as they are now. There was a lot more abuse of the scientific uh, of, of experimentation really like now in order to synthesize psilocybin which is from mushrooms costs a whole lot of money because there's so much uh, bureaucracy to go through whereas back then as you might be able to get the sense from Lily's experiments it was a little bit easier to get hold of heavy chemicals and to just go ahead and take them yourself Lily, <laughs> the craziest thing about Lily, which uh, and then and then we will kind of come back to talking about the film, because I just couldn't not talk about him for this long. And also, there's another podcast which has talked about John John Lily, and um, it, it. I don't want to tell you what the podcast is called because I, I don't want you to listen to it. Really, I think it's kind of mean. I think it makes fun of him in a way that is very dirty and unthoughtful. And I don't think he's a good guy because I don't think that his methods were very sound or uh, ethical. But I also think this stuff is interesting and I don't want to judge. Like this podcast is not a vehicle for me to judge. I've given my opinion you have your opinion let's talk about the stuff that happened so in 1974 his research led him to believe in the existence of a certain hierarchical group of cosmic entities the lowest of which he later dubbed earth coincidence control office in an autobiography published jointly with his wife to elaborate there exists a cosmic coincidence control center with a galactic substation called Galactic Coincidence Control. Within Galactic Coincidence Control is a solar system control unit within which is the Earth Coincidence Control Office. There's a hierarchy of cosmic coincidence control centers and offices. And he said, he, he wrote that there are nine conditions that should be followed by people who seek to experience coincidence in their own lives. One, you must know or assume or simulate our existence in the Earth Coincidence Controls Office. Two, you must be willing to accept our responsibility, our being the Earth Coincidence Control Office. You must be willing to accept our responsibility for control of your coincidences. Three, you must exert your best capabilities for your survival programs and your own development as an advancing slash advanced member of the Earth Coincidence Control Office Earthside Corps of Controlled Coincidence Workers. You are expected to use your best intelligence in this service. 4. You are expected to expect the unexpected every minute, every hour of every day and of every night. You must be able to maintain conscious 
slash thinking slash reasoning no matter what events we arrange to happen to you. Some of these events will seem cataclysmic or catastrophic or overwhelming. Remember, stay aware no matter what happens or apparently happens to you. 6. You are in our training program for life. There is no escape from it. We, not you, control the long-term coincidences. You, not we, control the shorter-term coincidences by your own efforts. 7. Your major mission on Earth is to discover or create that which we do to control the long-term coincidence patterns. You are being trained on Earth to do this job. Number 8. When your mission on planet Earth is completed, you will no longer be required to remain or return there. Number 9. Remember the motto passed to us from the Galactic Control Control via the Solar System Control Unit. Cosmic love is absolutely ruthless and highly indifferent. It teaches its lessons whether you like or dislike them or not. That's John C. Riley's crazy theories about the Earth Coincidence Control Office. I think that's beautifully enjoyable to read and to wonder about, no matter what you think of it. Now we haven't even got back to the film yet. We've talked about the plot of the film and we've talked about the screenwriter and the director's tumultuous relationship. We've also talked about John C. Lilly quite a lot. And now we've got to over an hour's worth of podcast content. Oh my gosh. I'm going to call this part one. Um, because I, I quite like what we've done with this. I want to put out this podcast as it is with all of this info in it. And then I'm going to do just a part two. The bad trips won't usually be this long. I'm going to do my best to curtail it. But like I said at the start of this podcast, I just couldn't stop learning this kind of shit. So um, thanks for sticking with it. I hope you come back to talk a little bit about more what we thought reading the film. Um, and I hope you enjoyed the film. And if you ha- if you didn't watch it, but you feel like it now, even though I've kind of spoiled it for you, go 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 ahead and watch it. And if you want help trying to find how to watch it, then email us or message us. Um, Drawingcore at riseup.net um, or on Facebook or whatever. In the meantime, before part two of this podcast, take care of yourselves. Be compassionate to yourself. Be compassionate to other people. Have a lovely drawing call weekend. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll see you soon. I thought it only made sense to share a psychedelic song with you. So this is Jenny Nettles by uh, Drum Spider. Check it out and enjoy it. And opurum sizi, seviorum sizi. Hadi bye bye.